G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to the second episode of Series 7 of This Week in Startups Australia. Scaling is the hardest task facing the startup entrepreneur. Harder than getting started, harder than getting to an MVP, harder than getting investment. Scaling is hard. But there are any number of startups who have scaled successfully, including a few that have already been on Twista, such as Canva, Envato, Catapult, and Airtasker. What can we learn from their successes in scaling? That's our theme for Series 7. In this episode... Our first news special of Series 7, we take a look at some of the companies that have failed to scale and ask whether the recently passed Access Act will make it more difficult for startups to scale internationally and ponder whether Australia's startup entrepreneurs are overpaying themselves. All of that, plus our most expert panel on this Twista news special. This Week in Startups Australia is proudly sponsored by Pitney Bowes. Are you a small business looking to streamline costs on shipping and postage? Simplify and save with SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. Visit them online at pitneybowes.com slash au slash twista. This Week in Startups Australia is also proudly sponsored by Mobile Experience, a UX consultancy offering research, strategy, and design services to Australia's leading startups. Learn more at mobileexperience.com.au. It's been five months since our last news special, and plenty has happened, including a number of expected events, such as the first anniversary of the Sydney Startup Hub, and some unexpected events, such as the passage of the Access and Assistance Act by the Parliament. That's a lot of ground to cover here. Fortunately, we are joined by two individuals who are thoroughly up to the task. Mike Nichols, Rescue Mike, as he's known on this podcast, is one of the general partners at the Main Sequence VC Fund, the CSIRO-backed fund. If you want to learn more about Mike and Main Sequence, go back and have a listen to Episode 2 of Series 6. Joining Mike is Anne-Marie Elias. If I were going to name a single individual who embodies the bridge between startup land and government at all levels, it would be Anne-Marie. In her work with TechFugees and Unbox, that's Australia's well-being and social impact accelerator, Anne-Marie reminds us that there are greater goals and greater good that can drive us to great things. Welcome, Anne-Marie. Give us a quick backgrounder on Unboxed. It's been coming for a long time. I think, you know, I fell in love with hackathons about five years ago, and the biggest frustration that I have is what happens after the hackathons and so many great ideas, but there's no one really picking up the ideas and supporting the startups to flourish after these hackathons. So I started thinking, well, what do startups do? Like, how do they succeed? And then I sort of started looking into things like accelerators. And, um, you know, obviously I've been working with Disruptors Handbook and we, Gavin and I, 
were talking about this stuff and we thought, you know, we need a social impact accelerator to take these startups to the next level. So last year we did some work with a 50-year-old not-for-profit called New Horizons and convinced them that they need to step up in the sector and create a space for social impact startups. And it includes uh, eventually, hopefully, setting up an investment fund that will just focus on funding these startups. But most importantly, and this is a flaw I've seen in every single accelerator and every single program for startups in this country, is that no one gives you customers. And that is where a lot of startups will end up failing if they don't acquire customers and validate their idea. So I call this a plug-in with New Horizons. So people come into the lab, they get a bit of money, they get the usual accelerator-type program designed by Disruptors Handbook, which supports them in you know looking at their business models. But most importantly, we connect them back into New Horizons, who have 4,000 customers and over 1,200 staff. So that way, we give you customers, we get to test the metal of your startup. So that's what it's all about. And it's beautiful because you see so much creativity happening in all of these amazing hackathons for all of these different areas. And so much of that is then just fading away right as soon as the hackathon ends. It's like a three-night stand. That's how I liken it, honestly. So <laughs> a, a short affair, I guess, is what we're saying. Very too short. And you feel so... So bad afterwards because you meet all these incredible people. You connect at a really deep level because you're sharing so much knowledge and you've got pressure, time pressures, so you're in a pressure cooker. So you get to know people really well and you build some incredible ideas and then you never see them again. <laughs> That's it. That was it. And you kind of pine and you think, oh, oh, but but we had it going on there. So it is a bit like an affair, I guess. All right. Well, Anne-Marie, welcome to Twister. Welcome back, Mike. Thank you. All Thank right. you very much, Mark. Good to uh, see you again. Good to see been you been a long again. time. Your studio is looking fantastic now for the, um, the <laughs> listeners who can't see this. The wall is now covered in all special sorts of soundproofing material, and it's being lo- like being locked into a decompression chamber. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> All right. We're going to dive right in. Now, on the first half of the show, all of these topics are reasonably political in the sense that they touch something that's going on with government. And the first topic I want to talk about is the Access and Assistance Act. So this passed through Parliament in December. And we'll talk about the specifics of the Act in a second. But it was not so much what the specifics of the Act were. It was how it was immediately framed by the tech industry. And At the time that the act passed, I was in America and I was at an event. And at that event, it was a small event, was also Sir Tim Berners-Lee and Vince Cerf, so respectively the father of the web and the father of the internet. And I got effectively shirt-fronted by both of them going, what's going on in Australia? What are you doing to the net? And then we see this line from, say, Mike Kenner Brooks and from Startup Australia, all of these different organizations going, oh, my God, you're wrecking startups. It's going to be impossible for us to compete. We're all going to be spied on by the government, so on and so on and so on. And I actually was legitimately worried. For instance, I use a tool called Signal, which is a peer-to-peer encryption tool that I wasn't going to be able to use that, that they'd have to withdraw that from the market. And well, there's a, there was a lot of screaming and weeping and gnashing. And finally then, on the 1st of March, we had a panel here at the studio, and I was lucky enough to be asked to facilitate the panel, in which we had experts actually coming 
and talking about what the act actually means, in, both in practice in terms of law, but what it will mean for startups. And here's what security expert Simran Gamber had to say. It's a power that exists now, and it's now the government is asking for access to some things that it has historically lost access to. So I guess 50 years ago, like uh, Andrew was saying, there was the alligator clips, and you could see the communication in the clear. Now, obviously, technology moves, moves faster than regulation. Companies like Google and everyone have come up, and they've actually centralized. Today, there's more centralization than decentralization of the software people use of how they work the system. And there is nothing the government is asking for that isn't possible currently by those companies. Okay, so Simran is making it sound as though this isn't really a big deal and it's not really going to affect the startups. It'll affect Google and Facebook, but only so that they need to hand over what they already know about us. What do we think about this? I'm really stressed about all of these things because it's that middle or that fine line between um, overreach and then also a fine line I think we've seen with social media's impact on racial vilification and all those types of things that for the tech companies it's a lot of a lot of the glory but no responsibility. Mm. So personally, I think, um, as usual, the government probably didn't consult with all the right people, and I'm sorry to say that, but that's our experience, right? So if they haven't consulted with the right people, they're mashing up a policy that serves particular interests without understanding the whole. And I think that this is just about policy in general in this country. It's fast, it's, it's shoved through because somebody gets a brain idea that, oh, wow, no, we really have to do this and it's so important it'll make us look good. And I'm telling you, as a former advisor, someone's saying that in a room. And so ministers act and departments then act on the advice of the ministers. But then you get these half-baked things that, you know, people are confused about it, people are angry about it, people are reacting about it. But I will still go back to my first point is that we do need a middle way. Tech companies cannot continue to do this and not take responsibility for what what they incite by the virtue of what they're doing. I get that governments want to be able to ring or contact companies and say, hey, you know, we've seen this happen. Can you tell us who did it and, and whatever? And, we, and that we know you have this data and therefore can you yeah. tell us who did it? But it, it, it really bleeds into privacy and, and that's something I'm not particularly comfortable about either. Okay, at the risk of uh, getting myself into trouble here, I, I won't comment on government policy per se. Um, but what I will say is this, I believe, was supported by both sides of Parliament. Yes. Um, so that's an important point to note. I yes. believe yep. it's still subject to review, um, uh, which will be finalised, I think, in April. Yes. Um, clearly, there's bad actors trying to attack the country, yes. uh, which we've re recently witnessed with the federal parliament hack. The parliament hack. Very, we, yeah. we only know that it happened. We don't know who, where, why. Yeah, exactly right. Happened. But I mean, clearly there's bad actors. And we know this is happening in an industrial espionage perspective. We know it's happening with state actors. We know it's happening you know, with, with, with um, if you like, quasi-state-sponsored actors. So clearly there's some problems there. Um, and I think it's it's well-meaning to try to do this, whether it has the effect they want, that's another question. Um, so, you know, I think the bill provides a means to try to give them what they believe that they need to do that job. Um, I think there is a very strong 
law of unintended consequences mm. yep. with this um, with this bill, and I think if you open up a hole in an encryption system, um, it's open for everybody, possibly. Right. But that's specifically forbidden by the Act. This is one of the things that I learned during this day. This, it's, there's language specifically in the Act that says you cannot do anything to compromise an existing system. All you can do is ask people who already have these systems. So yeah. Google already has all of your data decrypted. Apple already has all of your data decrypted. And in fact, before we walked into studio this morning, it was reported overnight that Facebook had several million passwords unencrypted available to all of their employees. That's not a good look either. So so they ha- they actually all have all of this data and what the government is effectively now starting to do is asking for that data. Mm. What they can't do is they can't ask them to change iOS or Android in a way that makes it less secure, at least according to the legislation. Yeah. Whether that happens unintended consequences, you're absolutely right. And this is the question they can't answer either. Yeah, I look. I'm I'm not convinced that it necessarily disadvantages Australian companies per se. I think all companies will be subject to it, but want to do business here Correct. or have products here. Um, it, it, obviously, it's not a good soundbite, you know, in the press that we've that it's been passed. But I understand why it's done. Yes. But at the same time, here's my prediction: where I think this will go. If you're a bad actor, you won't actually use something which is likely to be able to be forced to do this by by government. Um, you'll use an open source product or some, if you like, privately created product that actually isn't, um, you know, an official app from one of the big players. I suspect that we'll probably see drop-ins of security plugins that allow people to do their own encryption, where the control isn't in the end company you know, isn't under control by the company and isn't able to be affected by the company. So I think the act, though it might be well-meaning, may not end up you know, actually achieving what they want to achieve. All right. Anne-Marie, one of the things that came out on the panel was that the government could see that the tech industry had taken this and gotten a lot of ideas that weren't true. And they said, OK, well, we've put up some pages to help educate people. And they've done that. Yeah. But it became clearer than, in fact, what they needed to do is when they were allocating budget for the act, they also needed to be allocating budget to have a sort of a bit of a PR offensive to tell people, no, Australia is still open for business. Our startups aren't being disadvantaged by this. Is that part of that unintended consequences that Mike's talking about, that you can pass this act, but if there's potential for business damage, industrial damage, then the government also has to prepare for that? They have to have a risk mitigation strategy. And that's why I said at the beginning, if you don't have the right people in the room that can help you navigate this quagmire, uh, you're not going to develop the right policy. And it exactly as Mike said, it will have unintended consequences. Because they, they had the right... It sounds like the right technology people in terms of people who would understand signals analysis and cryptography and the way these systems work, but it doesn't sound like they had anyone from trade and industry, I guess is probably the way to put it. That would then be saying, okay, but an export software product is now going to have to assure because people have had either contracts delayed or cancelled because they're operating, because they're Australian companies. Like this is not anecdotal. This is actually starting to happen. So So have you got some examples of it? I haven't actually heard of any physical... uh, Hard, hard examples of it. Um, so uh, Stuart, who is uh, Stuart Waite, who's here, who was on the panel with us, you know, the day after the act had passed, was getting calls from his vendors that he was selling to in England, right. having to calm them down. And so they, he'd taken a sales process that was nearly at the sign-off, and it got reset because they were in this 
sort of null zone. In a sense, it's like Australia's mini Brexit in that it produces a lot of uncertainty around things. Yeah. And it clearly needs to be someone's job to dispel the uncertainty. Is that job the government's job? No, not anymore. And, you know, that is my honest opinion. It's up to us. I mean, we have Startup Oz, we have Tech Sydney, we have Spark Festival. We have a number of groups that bring together the breadth of the ecosystem that can have robust discussions. Why are we waiting constantly for government to lead? It's up to us to lead. And if we're unhappy about this, we should be putting out information to support our sector. And, you know, so we've got to sort of grow up a little bit now. We're still going on about as if we're still all new, but we're not. We're, we've been around for a long time. We have, the, we have the skills is what I know. We have the skills, we have the intelli- intellect and the intelligence to bring a group of people together and say, you know what, the government stuffed up with this one again, but here's what we think and put out our own information. Yes, ideally it should have been the government to do that, but if you don't have the right players like Mark who who would be able to say, actually, this is going to affect my business in a massive way and these are the reasons why, then they can't do anything about it because they're not doing that. But having said that, like one thing I have learned from the whole startup sector, sector is scenario planning, right? So we should have had some scenarios that shows this is company A, company B, company C, D, E and F, and this is how it's going to affect the range of companies in Australia with this act. I mean, uh, you know, put this in perspective, though, we're not the first people to make um, uh, laws around encryption. US government's had export restrictions on encryption for a long, long time. Um, And so this isn't new about controlling, and I think you'll see this coming out in the quantum space perhaps as well. Yes, absolutely. So this is not new at all. And the government's responding to obviously a very clear um, threat from parties that are not in the country or maybe in the country. So I think it's easy to say that they should have a better view about it from a startup's perspective. But at the same time, you know, the startups don't have their view either. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they're not the ones who have to ward off the literally constant machine gunning of, of you know, hacking attacks in yes. the country. So, yeah. Anyway. All right. No, no. I mean, this is... The, uh, I mean, I think it's it's useful to say that the can is has been kicked to us and yes. that it's up to us to the degree that it's possible to be able to share the message. All right. Topic two. Startup muster. So one of the first things that happened this year when we all came back to work is we found out from Murray Herbst that Startup Muster has lost the bulk of its funding, which was coming from, I don't remember which department it was in government. Was it something in, I think, one of the state departments in New South Wales? Yeah, Jobs New South Wales. Was, was contributing around, was it $150,000 a year? Something like that, yeah. So around half of the budget. And that's basically now just gone away. And Startup Muster, and it has to be clear, every year there's been a Startup Muster. Startup Muster has been on this program going through the data with us and helping us and the community understand what it is doing. And it, I don't know that that... That startup muster has has found the funding. I think they were sort of flailing around. What do we think that says? I mean, one of the big suspicions that startup land has around government is they're not consistent, that they lose interest, that they move on rather than sticking with something. Is that this or is that something? Is this something else? It's totally consistent. (laughs) It's totally consistent with government. They're not there to fund you forever, right? So I think it's a lesson for us. Like, how long do we want the government funding for? And we all know it comes with strings attached. So they can't criticise certain things when they're being funded by a department. We, we all can't. Like, you know, not-for-profits can't criticise as much as they did, say, 10 or 20 years ago. So 
it's a bit weird to me because I am also in two minds about it. I think a data uh, survey like Startup Muster is necessary, like the ABS has data, right? So data is extremely important for us to understand what's actually happening in true life, not the platitudes and the political agendas. So one part of me says, no, it should be funded, but I think it should be funded out of the ABS personally. Right now, if you, I remember I worked for the ATO for a number of years and every department within the ATO had to purchase ABS data. Talk about powering on and supporting your fellow department. And it did my head in because I was fairly new to government. I'm sitting there going, Peter, but we Paul. are the government <laughs> and she's got it because she bought it last week. But here I am now and I have to purchase it as well. And it's like, oh, yes, but we're supporting the ABS in that way. So I get it. But we didn't do that with Startup Muster. I, mm-hmm. I, I think that, in part, they shouldn't have expected funding ad nauseum forever mm. because it's meant to be seed funding yeah. to help you get started. And then as startups, we know better than anyone else, we've got a period of time to get our act together to work out how to monetize and how to scale this idea. Now, they've scaled it because it's a national survey, but they never got the monetizing of it. They didn't do industry verticals out of the data and sell those reports because I bet you they could have gotten government to pay for it in a different way. So I think there's the two minds is one, yes, I do believe 100% Startup Muster should exist and it should be funded and probably it should be funded by government because it's an important data set that we need to understand so that we make good policy decisions. But then on the other hand, how long for? Right, over to me. Um, look, I'm a big supporter of Murray Herps. Um, fantastic guy. I think he's done an enormous amount for the um, for the ecosystem here in New South Wales and really Australia. Um, the only question for me is whether the startup muster actually drives policy or not. Um, I'm not 100% convinced it does. Um, I think votes and jobs drive policy. And the trouble is um, this may not be enough to move the needle mm. for any given government. And so if it's not, they look at the priorities of what will drive jobs and um, perhaps they didn't see that value in this situation. Um, I I likewise agree it probably belongs in the ABS. Um, I don't think it was ever meant to be a for-profit scenario or self-sustaining. I mean, I don't see really how you can sell that data for-profit. I think mean, it's disappointing that it's not there, but I, I, at the same time, I, I, again, I'm just not convinced it was moving the needle from a policy perspective, whether it changed that much policy. So, while I don't want to fall into the fallacy of correlation equaling causation, I do want to point out that the 2018 startup muster was the first one that showed the needle going backward in some very significant areas, particularly around diversity, but also around the number of startups that were being formed. And I'm wondering if that factored in at even an unconscious level around, okay, well, we've got the data, the data is now not really doing what we want it to do, and maybe we just kind of want to shoot the messenger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, look, I actually, when I saw those results, I wondered whether we were suffering from survey fatigue um, because we did see, uh, I think it was a survey that was only conducted a few weeks or a week before or something to that effect based out of Victoria, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I do wonder whether people say, oh, God, another survey, I don't want to do another survey. And so is it a true measure? I'm not sure. Um, you know, if, if it is a true measure, has anything changed in the rate of creation of fundable or successful, you know, um, standout startups? 
and I'm not convinced it's gone either way. I'm not sure that um, there's any less uh, action or noise. Certainly, if you walk around the startup hub, there's a stack of action and noise. Mm. Um, so maybe it's just that it's all visible because it's in one place. But there certainly seems to be a lot of up rounds. There certainly seems to be a lot of companies which uh, are showing mm-hmm. early runs on the board. Mm. I don't know necessarily that the decrease has actually led to a decrease in quality startups. Mm. But it becomes, I guess, a media narrative. And this is, I mean, this is kind of the thing because it's it's broadcast and becomes a media narrative. All right. Last topic in this segment, first anniversary of the Sydney Startup Hub. Here I have an audio grab from the event that celebrated. I just wanted to make sure that we recognize, we take a moment, we recognize the success of the Sydney Startup Hub on its first anniversary. Okay, here we are. How important has the hub been in its first year to the startup community in New South Wales and probably nationally? How important, Mike? I'm a big fan of the hub. Um, I think it's a fantastic place to bring people together. yeah, I have nothing but praise for, for what's been built here. But I have no, not a single criticism about it whatsoever. Um, you know, I think going forward, it's great that we've got a future plan for a bigger place. Um, you know, certainly with a bunch of sort of influential anchor tenants. Um, you know, it, 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 concent- it, it concentrates the attention. It mm. creates opportunities. Um and yeah, um, I, I can't speak highly enough of it. I think the world's changed because of it. So, Anne Marie, I think it's so positive. Um, you know, I remember in the early days when we were having conversations with various ministers' offices to to start the conversation, and I think uh, the people that took it to the next level and actually did all the workings out and organising the landing of this space, uh, just tremendous group of people. And it is, it's wonderful to come in here, you know. It's wonderful to walk in and know that I can just sit in in the common area and meet somebody that's interesting. Uh, I know that I can go up to Stone and Chalk and see a bunch of people. Fishburners, you know, my favourite place. The studio is really getting its legs up as well. So, you know, I think I think it's it's a positive thing to bring the community together and... I think that that's probably what was missing when we're all fragmented and we're all sitting in our own little places. It's a bit like the change journey. I I say a lot that in the last few years what I've noticed is change agents are being thrown together. Now, we don't have a space like the Sydney Startup Hub, but that's what this place represents to me. It's It's a place of change. It's a place of the future. It's a place where, you know, the cultural and... Other diversity is very, very evident to me, and I feel very positive when I when I walk into this space and attend events. Okay, let me tie this into the last story, though. You know, Sydney Startup Hub is basically funded at the sufferance of the New South Wales government of Jobs New South Wales. At some point, maybe the Sydney Startup Hub will be asked to stand on its own feet. I doubt it because it's a good story to tell, and politics is about announceables. It's hard to do an announceable around a survey that actually tells you you're not doing a great job. But it's really easy to walk in here and shake hands and meet incredible people and come to events. And that's a story I really think that the government would be crazy to drop the startup hub when it can bring a politician here, you know, seven days a week and actually get and a have very... And cut the ribbing, ribbon cut on ribbons something. and talk to a startup and ring the bell and... 
you know, it's a place. It's it's become a place now, and I don't think they're going to be able to uh, walk away from it, especially now that they've invested in the second hub. Uh, you know, with corporates that probably didn't need the money or the support at all. Uh, I mean, I would be very critical of them dropping Sydney Startup Hub when they're still investing in hubs. Look, I think both sides of government want jobs. I think both sides of government want to build industries. You know, certainly that's what we're about. And so I think that, um, uh, you know, the hub has proven to be so far a a great place for that. Um, You know, whether large industries come out of it, that's another question. But I think it's a step in the right direction. I think it's a great place for rural um, uh, startups to come and try to uh, get a foothold, if you like. Um, So, yeah, look. You know, some policies might change, but I think the objectives are probably pretty similar on both sides of the, um, the government. So. And that's up to us. I think, um, have we told the story to Labor? Have we engaged with the Labor shadow ministers? Because that that's actually something that we need to learn to do because we shouldn't care who's in government. We should have those relationships down pat. And like we criticise government for not being able to tell their story properly, I think we're a bit limited in the way that we, we... We're good at telling each other the story, but, you know, I want people in Taree to know that this startup hub is helping people from their community generate business that's actually going to go back and support them. So those stories, I think, still need to come out. And if we can do that, Labor, Liberal, it doesn't matter who's in government, they will support it because it's a place of stories and demonstrating what we're actually doing. You're listening to the Twister News Special and we'll be right back. Are you a small business or small e-tailer looking for better ways to streamline costs and improve efficiency? Introducing SendPro Plus from Pitney Bowes, the complete office sending solution that makes it easy for small businesses and e-tailers to consistently choose the right sending option for each parcel or letter. SendPro Plus provides shipping options and prices, prints labels, and tracks parcels. An integrated accurate scale helps assign the correct parcel label or postage. SendPro Plus makes sending simple with automatic rate updates and a shared address book across available carriers. Pitney Bowes brings shipping, mailing, and tracking capabilities to businesses looking to simplify their shipping and mailing while reducing costs. Simplify and save with SendPro Plus today and receive a $200 credit toward your parcel shipping costs. Terms and conditions apply. To learn more, visit pitneybowes.com au slash twista. Welcome back to the Twisted News Special. We're here with Anne-Maria Elias and Mike Nichols. All right, we've demolished politics. Now let's talk startups. Topic four, scaling and collapsing. So last week, everyone was, I think, both surprised and not surprised that Shoes of Prey had gone into administration. It had collapsed. And you can think back to five years ago when it was considered the hottest startup in the country. Mike, is this a scaling problem? I mean, this is the theme for Series 7 is we're trying to study scale. We're trying to understand how we can make startup scale. Was this a scaling problem at Shoes of Prayer or was it something else? 
Yeah, it, look, I'm not an insider in the business, so I, I don't have an inside view. Um, I guess um, everybody likes to make a big media beat up about these sort of things. Mm. Um, but look, the, the, unfortunately, the reality of startup life is that startups do fail, and they, you know, good startups fail for a whole bunch of reasons. Um, you know, I think from their perspective, it's a tough thing. There's a lot of moving parts. Um, did they have a scaling problem or did they have a, um, a product market fit problem? It's, it's hard for me to know the difference because if they were going mental and you know, there was massive demand for the product and it kept going, then maybe those, start, those scaling problems, you know, the manufacturing, the ordering, the customization, they may have been able to be scaled. But I think maybe the problem was as much that, you know, the, the, there was a demand there, but the, maybe the demand didn't quite match what was required and maybe the margins weren't strong enough to support it. And I, I'm starting to think it might have been that because they had so much customization yeah. and so much that was being done by hand in assembly and, of yeah. course, they were committed to ethical that's trade That's a tough practices. business. As you know, it's and a tough business to point. build anything for a start. To customize things, even tougher. Right, exactly. I mean, so, you try to, when you're building something, you're manufacturing something, you try to minimize the number yeah, of possible options exactly. because it just multiplies complexity and it multiplies the chances for mistakes to creep in. Yeah, I mean, if you've ever been, for example, to Vietnam, I've been to Vietnam, you go to some of the places, Huyan, where you can actually have a set of shoes made for you while you have a, a cup of coffee um, and it's, it's cheap as chips I might add and they're pretty rubbish shoes but that's another story um, uh, but you know if you watch that process it's actually not a particularly simple process there's a whole bunch of mm. you know different cutouts different things and so on if you're trying to do that a world away and make that work mm. I mean there's a and do it ethically you. Well, and, and and all those constraints as well. I don't know about you, but I'm a fairly impatient shopper. I just want to buy a product and move on. I actually probably don't want to customise your shoes. I'm probably not that good at customising your shoes. Just give me a set of shoes that I like and yeah, are comfortable. You and I are both blokes. It's kind of like we need the brown pair and the black pair. And I understand. Kind of I don't want yeah. to customise my shoes. You don't. You no, don't. no. Like I've never. I've look. I loved shoes of prey. I loved the concept of it. I was never a customer because I don't have style to be able to design my own shoes. And heaven forbid, they'd probably be seventy inch <laughs> high to let me be tall. But maybe with a homey ped underneath so that they're soft. I don't know. Look, they're they're good founders. I think you know it was a bad outcome. Doesn't mean it was a bad bet. I think, you know, it was probably a reasonable bit that there might be something in this. It hasn't turned out that way. One of the founders um, wrote a blog about it, about what his views were. Yeah, Mike, and, Mike, Mike, Michael, Michael Fox is the yeah. co-founder, yeah. So, and he did talk about the ethics of it, that they made a very clear decision that they weren't going to send stuff and exploit people to other countries and so forth. Um, manufacturing is expensive at the best of times. I think that there was some indication in, in his blog about the fact that they took a leap of faith in what their customers wanted. So there was a little tiny disconnect in terms of the demand that was really there and what they thought might be there. So is it a problem of scale? I mean, I think they were a really successful company. I, I you know, they had a lot of great people in there. So, so that distresses me a little bit because if they couldn't make it work with the people that they had and the intention that they had, then then it really doesn't augur well for others that don't have the best teams or 
or the mm. best people. I mean, the thing I, I see here is that, you know, and we look at this every day when we look at startups, the more moving parts you have or the more planets that need to align in order for the business to work, the lower the probability of the whole thing working. And so there are a lot of planets to get aligned in this model. And, you know, we see the media really jumping on the failures. And to a lesser extent, they jump on the successes. We had Lounge Buddy, which oh, yeah. was a, a started in Australia but then went to America, and they got purchased for, I think, around $60 million last week as well. That was in, on the front page of the Sydney Morning Herald. So I, I read that and, and got very interested. But I wonder, again, does it come back to this ability to be able to tell stories? Founders are, I think, very clear and very um, equanimical about a failure story because we find something in a failure story that we can learn from. It's like, oh my God, I'm not going to make that mistake because Mark made that mistake or whatever. But the world at large, does it have a different view and is that then affecting this? When we hear a failure story, we're like, oh yeah, okay, that happens. And when the world hears it, it's like, oh my God, the entire startup space is unreliable. Well, look, the reality is it is, but people don't want to talk about it. I mean, I always like to say that um, success has many fathers. Failure is a bastard. (laughs) Nobody wants to know about the failure and it's automatically seen as a talking point for a journalist that um, the whole sector is broken if something fails. But the reality is most of human effort is is wasted. Most of human effort is a failure. Well, it doesn't work. Most of human <laughs> effort is a learning experience. It's a learning experience. Thank yeah. you for the correction. <laughs> um, look, you know, the reality is that you know, most things that are tried in science are failures. The experiments are failures. It's a natural part of life. And that's the same with, um, with startups, but people don't see it that way. And look, there is a, a a different view of failure in in the rest of the community. Um, I think we'll see after the upcoming election tomorrow in New South Wales and then the federal election what poor losers, people that don't win, are like. And so failure isn't isn't the best thing in the world. We've learned to adapt to it, and we've said, okay. We're going to learn from this, and it's actually how we reveal ourselves after the failure that is that shows our character. But I, I don't know that, that the outside world really affects us in that way. I mean, we, we know what we're doing. Uh, what, what percentage of small businesses fail? Oh, it's, it's probably a, a similar percent. I mean, certainly, what, 50% have failed within the first year and then, I don't know, 70% within the first five? Yeah, so it's not uncommon. It's what happens in business when you're starting something, and in particular in startup because they're, they're doing edgy things. They're, they're bringing in new technologies. They're working with different methods and so forth. So I think there's always going to be a risk of failure there and and people looking at that as a bad thing. But I like the way the startup sector has actually inverted that and has said, no, we love our failures, we're going to embrace the failures, we're going to learn from them and we're going to grow. But that that's the main point, right, is that what are we learning from these failures? And again, I, I will go back to Spark Festival, Tech Sydney and uh, Startup Oz who are meant to be advocating for the sector. What are they doing to go back to government and express that story? Because it is really important that we learn from the failures and the failures are the only way that we learn. I'd like to go on record and say that failure's a bitch. Um, you know, and I think that um, you know, Mark would agree with me. We've both been through scenarios that haven't worked out. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of popularising or, or lionising the, um, uh, the whole failure stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and yes, there's something to learn by them, but... Um, 
I've got to tell you, if you've been through something that's really tough, it's actually not a very nice situation. And, um, you know, it's easy to sort of say, oh, that's wonderful, that's great, you're so brave, and so on and so on. But it's actually... It's actually, it's real oh, people, it's real jobs, it's actually awful. And but so, um, it hurts like hell. It hurts like hell, to right? You. Oh, yeah. And so, um, I'm not a fan of sort of, you know, the popularization of that situation. Um, uh, you've got to acknowledge it, of course, but it is a natural part of, you know, of startup life and, in fact, your business life. Yes. Okay, topic five. So, within, I think, a week of one another, the startup community, particularly in Sydney, lost two of its most prominent women. So Petra Andren, who was, I think, general manager at Cicada. And, you know, I have had the good fortune to be able to work with Petra through the Incubate program. where We sit on the boards together. And I was always very lucky because when I was on a board with Petra, I would never have to ask the hard questions. She'd come <laughs> in and she'd just like, I'd get to ask the sort of nice, oh, have you thought about what colors it should come in questions? Because Petra is going to be there asking it. She's not there right now because she stepped away and in fact has gone back to Europe. She stepped out of Cicada. She said this is for family reasons, really wanted to spend more time with her daughter. So it's all all lovely. But yes. then on the back of that, we have Pandora Shelley, who last year was elevated to become the CEO of Fishburners, really took that role on and managed that move. And Fishburners is now just incredibly strong within the space at the hub. And then announced, okay, you know, I'm going to go to New York. And both of these folks, you can see why they're doing it. You can feel really happy for them. Pet, uh, Pandora is certainly young enough. You can tell she's got an amazing future ahead of her. And yet it's created this particular vacuum. And it's a particular vacuum where we had amazing women. And how do we manage to sort of keep the diversity strong here? I mean, because people are going to leave. If these were men, we'd be just like, ah, oh, they're going on. But they're women, and we were valuing the fact that we're getting women into these roles. Succession planning. Are we doing succession planning? Are we thinking when we appoint a new CEO that part of their job is actually to be looking for who's going to replace them, yeah. or at least mentoring somebody that has the capacity? It's a big blow to the sector to lose two outstanding women like like them. And in particular, Pandora, because I knew her from five years ago when she first started at Fishburn. When she was Murray's PA, basically. (laughs) Right. You know, so I've watched her grow and and just blow everybody away. But we all knew that because when you saw her, she's a hard worker. She's very, very smart. And she was very passionate about being in this space. But, you know, at the same time, I say power to them both. Um, totally understand Petra's need to focus on family. You know, your kids don't stop growing because you're working 20 hours a day um, and you do miss a lot of incredible opportunities to to be part of a family, which is, you know, something important to uh, to them, to the kids, to, the, to, the, to society. And then with Pandora, I'm just super excited about what's going to come from her. But it really does beg the question, like, are we, when we appoint people, is one of the conversations boards have with them so you know your first job is to be thinking about, you know, one of your first jobs, yeah, who's going to follow. And I don't think any of us have done that really well. I mean, they don't do that in corporate Australia really well either. But I think, you know, given that we're, we're a bit younger and a bit more nimble, I think we really need to start thinking of that, especially because we've just lost two outstanding women and who knows who's going to replace them. 
So um, I, I don't know Pandora, so I can't comment about Pandora, but we have a great relationship with uh, with Petra and um, have known her for many, many years. Um, I think she's been there a long time. It's like five or six years that she's been there as a CEO and done a fantastic job. Um, we haven't lost her. She'll be back in six, nine months. She's gone to sort out some family issues, you know, ageing father, all that sort of stuff. We'll get her back, and we hope to do more business with her in the future. I'm sure that she will pop up you know, in an important role somewhere. Um, uh, look, one of the things that we've done to sort of help with that issue as part of um, the, the Main Sequence Ventures fund arrangement is that all of the companies that we invest in agree to an ESG, environmental, um, uh, uh, what do you say, um, policy, where for every senior hire, they agree that they will interview um, both diverse and male and female candidates. Mm -hmm. So they must actually do that as part of a funding agreement. And so that's one way, I guess, to try to change some of those scenarios. But I think we'll see Petra back. I think that's fine. Um, you know, she's got some good people behind her there that are probably going to step into that gap. I'm not sure who the new hire for that CEO role is, but I think she's done a great job in what I think would be a challenging role because you're reporting to um, five academic slash researcher yes. yes. um, board members. I can't imagine that would be an easy um, role as a CEO to run, and I think she's done an awesome job in it. So hopefully we'll see her back in a better role later this year. I was speaking to one of her employees the other night, and he said, yes, sometimes I would roll into the office, and sh the first words out of her mouth were, I did a bad thing last night. <laughs> 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 Which may very well have come from having to deal with all of these different yeah, interest groups and yeah. stakeholders. Yeah, exactly. Okay, final topic. Overpaid entrepreneurs. Oh. So, according to American venture capitalist Laura Tooby, and I'm getting this from my LinkedIn Daily News update, which I absolutely love because there's little bits like this in it. Tooby said that she wanted to see that founders were prepared to sacrifice income to grow the businesses for shareholders and that she'd noticed Australian founders pay themselves more than entrepreneurs in the United States or other locations. Okay, folks. <laughs> What do we think about this? Do we know for a fact that that's uh, true? Like I mean, she quoted no examples, but anyway, it was nice sort of off the, um, the cuff comment. Um, look, I find it difficult to believe that you know, US-based startups, especially in the Valley, are not mm. playing themselves somewhere that they could afford to live. Well, you know, yeah, like, if you're living in San Francisco, oh, you've got so to be able to afford rent. It's, mm. it's worse in Australia, yeah. uh, and Sydney is bad, but yes. San Francisco is, um, is much, much worse. Um, look, here's a problem, especially in our space. You know, we're working in sort of a deep tech science engineering mm. space where many of the founders are not 21-year-olds that can live on ramen in their parents' you know, closet. And so um, some of these people, they're you know, in their sort of 30s to 50s and they, um, you know, they've got 20 years' worth of experience. They've got mortgages. They have children. Yeah. But, but we want what they have. We want the engineering or the science capability that they bring to the table and, and – the reality is we have to keep them we have to keep them fed we have to be able to make sure that we don't cause their marriages to break up or their children to starve and so they have to be paid you know a, a decent amount now there's always a tune up uh, what do you say a uh, 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 a balance for that. I mean, I've got a scenario at the moment. I'm trying to create a company, and I had somebody who was a fantastic candidate come to me, but that person's being paid two thousand dollars a day to consult to a particular organisation. 
it's really tough for me to compete with that. I'm yeah. really struggling to put together a package that even makes sense for that person. And so, yeah, it's a challenge. You know, uh, when I had a startup in San Francisco in 91, now this is before San Francisco became what we think of today as San Francisco, I was able to pay myself, I think, about $600 a month because I had rent that was only $300 a month in a big share house with the other three founders of the company. And we had all the space. We had a basement that we could develop the product in. And those days simply don't exist anymore in San Francisco or in Sydney. But even only paying myself that little, it actually wore me down yeah. because I'd come from a job where I was making plenty of money. I was a very successful engineer. And Going backward like that when you're 30 years old is not just hard because you're like, well, where, how can I do things? But it's hard because it's that grind of poverty. And so yeah. I saw Antler did their big launch on Tuesday here at Fishburners. Antler is another accelerator program. And one of the things they were very clear about when they pitched is that as soon as you enter their accelerator program for that first two-month period before you secure your seed round – you get paid $4,000 a month because, as they said, there's no reason a founder should starve yes. when they're building a startup. Is that the right path? I think that's setting a very high expectation. I mean, it's each to their own, right? Like I, I remember starting out at Fishburners about five years ago and there were people that were eating ramen, that were sleeping on the floor, uh, you know, sleeping in cars to build their business. So, you know... Uh, I'm going to use a political term. Startups are a broad church. And so we have startups that do starve themselves and don't pay themselves much. I, I think one year when I was doing startup, I paid myself maybe $16,000 a year, uh, which was pretty hideous given that I was raising a family and paying uh, rent and all that kind of stuff. But they're the sacrifices you make when you don't know what you're doing, I guess. Um, I think that, you know, we can't, you know, if each to their own, if somebody has the capacity to pay somebody well, then they should pay somebody well. If they don't, then then it's got to be some sort of other way of remunerating that person. People should not starve. They should not be living in their cars, especially not in Australia, but anywhere. Having, you know, having said that, I mean, drive down Palo Alto and you'll see lines, you indeed. know, kilometres worth of RVs with supposedly, I'd imagine, you know, startup founders living in some of those RVs. Um, look, the, here, here's a reality, and that is that if you, the amount of pain that you can uh, withstand as a startup founder as you're starting your business will have a direct effect on the amount of equity that you end up with. Mm. So if, the more pain you're able to deal with from a financial perspective in the early days, the likelihood is that you will end up with a larger equity stake at the other end. Balancing that, and, and it's not, uh, it, you know, that's a decision that the startup founder and their funders, be it either themselves or an investor, has to make. But you can't, you know, you can only survive on that for so long. I had a, a founder recently who has been three years without a wage um, and you know, has built a fantastic product, which arguably has been very successful, but he's sort of at a point where he can't. No. hold on to that any longer yeah. and needs to find him, you know, he's one of a couple of founders, he needs to find himself another role. And so um, what I as an investor can't have though is I can't put a whole bunch of money into a company and have a scenario where my founder cannot pay the bills no. for yes. his family no. and for himself or herself. Yeah. And so I just, I cannot be in that position where they're worried about how do I pay the bills at home. Yeah. 
and they can't focus on the business. Yeah, I mean, I was mentoring a startup uh, this a couple of years ago, and the, the startup founder was getting all of this engineering resources basically donated. Oh, yeah, they all have equity. I'm like, look, you're not paying them anything. It's like, no, it's like, all right, at a certain point, they're going to break, right? And, and maybe yeah. because they're actually working full time because that's what they need to do because they aren't getting paid for this. But at some point, yes. if you don't compensate people well, they'll break. All right. This has been an amazing, illuminating, wonderful discussion. Thank you to our panel, Mike Nichols and Maria Elias, and thank you for joining us on this Twist and News special. Fantastic. Thanks, mate. And I'd just like to congratulate you for your first million downloads of your other podcast, which is just absolutely amazing for an Australian podcast to be getting a million downloads. And on its way to two million, so um, fantastic, mate. Well done. Congratulations. What was that? You tell them where you can find it. What was it called? Yeah, nextbillionseconds.com. There you go. Thank Good you. on you, mate. Well done. Twista is sponsored by Mobile Experience, a UX consultancy that can amplify your startup's capabilities in three key areas. Through research with business and customers, developing strategy to determine the right platforms, and offering award-winning design from wireframing all the way to animation. Their clients include Twista guests GoFar and The Yield and include award-winning startups like Soldierly. They're happy to help from reviewing your work to working alongside your team to get to market on time or taking your existing MVP to the next level. Learn more at mobileexperience.com.au. One of the things that becomes clear when you're talking to Anne-Marie and to Mike is that part of our job in Startup Land is to tell the stories not just to one another, not just to learn from one another, but we need to tell those stories to the world so that they can understand what we're doing and what we're learning and how we're using that learning to improve what we're doing. Because... In essence, Startup Land is offering a methodology. I don't know if you want to call it agile or lean or whatever you want around how businesses can be born, they can learn, they can grow, they can thrive, they can fail, and then they can do it all over again. Big thanks to Twista sponsors Pitney Bowes and Mobile Experience. Their support makes our podcast possible. Thanks to the studio at Wynyard Green for providing the amazing facility where we record This Week in Startups Australia. It's the place for creative tech. Find out more at thestudio.org.au. Thanks to both Mike Nichols and Anne-Marie Elias for making the time to come on our show. Now, last year, we rebuilt and relaunched our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week in an extended conversation with one of the godfathers of the Australian startup community, Mick Lubinskis. We spoke to Mick just before he moved to Silicon Valley three years ago, and now we want to hear what he's learned in the belly of the beast. That's coming next week. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia.